Here's a tune called The Glen Road to Carrick, very well known tune up in the North West in Donegal. What a great way to open the second episode of the Attic Sessions, which is just basically a chance to get some brilliant people up in our attic to talk about music, poetry, the world. Um, so my name is Nessa O'Mahony, Peter Salisbury is behind the camera, and we are joined, we are delighted to say today, by two fantastic musicians, poets, um, Tony Curtis and Dermot McLaughlin, who you've just heard, so um, I'll, I'll introduce him uh, first. Um, and he is a Donegal uh, uh, fiddler, um, born in Derry, and uh, learned his music from some masters like Con Cassidy and James Byrne. So I'm going to begin asking him a bit about that. Um, and he has been performing. He's been on the road for the last while. And he also does a bit of teaching, master classes, and uh, we're going to find out a bit more about that. And beside him is Tony Curtis, who is a uh, renowned Dublin poet. Um, he uh, has, he told me, published about 16 volumes, um, including 10 collections. Um, he regularly works uh, with children in schools, um, regularly contributes to the Clifton Arts Festival. Um, his most recent volume is uh, a book called Approximately in the Key of C, right. which we'll be uh, talking about in a minute and hearing some work from. And um, he uh, edited, um, as the poet said, which was a selection of quotations from Dennis O'Driscoll's regular column in Poetry Ireland Review. So we're just thrilled to have both of you here. Um, we asked you both because we know that you're, 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 you're terrific musicians, but you're, you're brilliant people to talk to. And I've known both of you for years, so it's 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 an absolute thrill to have you here. Um, so I'm really curious to find out what started it off for both of you. That that you know, what launched 
Dermot as a, the traditional musician? Like, did you grow up hearing it? What made you want to play it? Well, when I was growing up in Derry, um, the house I grew up in was very musical. It was full of music. Both my parents had a big interest in music and they could both knock a tune out of different instruments. Yeah. Um, my mother could play a wee bit on the piano. My father would try his hand at anything. Uh, he drew the line at the at the Ellen pipes in the back. Pipes. He couldn't get his, uh, he couldn't he couldn't get on top of them. But he always had a like a wee um, melodeon in the house and a Jews harp, tin whistle, a fiddle. I still have his old fiddle. So we we always had that around the place, and we were encouraged. I suppose in our house, I would say looking back, one of the great things my parents passed on onto us was curiosity about things. So mm-hmm. if there was a thing lying there, you could footer about at it and mm. um, we learned to read music I have two brothers and two sisters so we learned to read music at home which is handy as well and um, that was a really good start did some classes in classical music on piano and on classical violin but always kind of had a always kind of gravitated towards uh, traditional music but I would have to say that the soundtrack in our house was very diverse I mean there was a lot of classical music and traditional music it was all music really yeah. uh, labels weren't a big issue I don't think yeah. um, and then, like learning to play the fiddle, traditional music was a, a great thing because alongside that, I, I was doing classical music and then school orchestra and stuff like that. So it was it was great to get the the best of of both worlds. Yeah. But I should say as well, uh, Nessa, like when I was growing up, I was born in eighteen sixty one in Derry. So learning traditional music during the nineteen sixties and seventies during the, the, the conflict times was was a, I suppose it had it had an awful lot more meaning than just playing tunes because for me there was a big thing there about uh, uh, your identity I think it belonged to us you know and yeah. I suppose there was, there was even though I wouldn't have said it at the time there was definitely a strong uh, political motivation to um, uh, pick up this music and and look after it and mm. learn as much as I could about it as as I did with Irish language as well but overall it's a thing that I find is all about uh, uh, enjoyment and adventure. I often say to people, like if I'm teaching in a, in a class, you know, and I've got youngsters in, in the class, um, I try to tell them, not, like, not to be worried about doing it right or wrong, first of all. If you imagine when you lift this thing up, you're stepping on a magic carpet and you don't know exactly where, yeah. where it's going to end up. So you just do your best. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of the attitude I, I found from a lot of the older players I learned from as well. It was, so it's not that there's a specific method for learning. You pick it up. Yeah. But the way you pick up language. Yeah, yeah. So Tony, for you, like, was which came first, music or poetry? Oh, or? Um, I, I don't know. You couldn't say I had a career in, in poetry. You don't suddenly one day, and and there was no music in my house. Um, you no, know, my, my father didn't play an instrument. My mother didn't play an instrument, and we were a lot of religion in our house. My yeah. father's three brothers were Cistercian monks yeah. in a silent order down in Roscrae, Mount Saint Joseph's. Um, so, I, I I was more. I was probably product of the 60s in that I would have listened to um, Bob Dylan, Johnny Mitchell, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen and before we had televisions yeah. or we, as kids we sat on the street so the whole street everybody on the street played the guitar whether they were good bad or whichever way sideways but I remember from, the, from being very young and playing the guitar mm. uh, we said let's learn a song and I, I was always the one saying no let's write a song so I always had that idea of, of making, making a, my granny used to call me Odd, in that she called my, all my brothers by their names, Brian, Philip, David, but she always says, where's Odd, in that I looked at, I, had a, I always had the other extra question, yeah. um, and then I, so I started writing songs, and we used to play places like Universal Folk Club, and eventually, I was no good at school, yeah. 
the only thing I was good at was, was poetry or was it English. I had a good, very good memory. So from so what, what age were you actually putting poems down on? on no, I wasn't. I was writing songs. Okay. I, it wasn't really until I, I, um, I went to London and then for an e as evening classes, uh, Blake Morrison did an evening class in creative writing. I used to go to, uh, just for, for a bit of crack. Every, every night I used to go to a different course in Goldsmiths College and one was um, creative writing with Blake Morrison. And that mm. class was fascinating because the people who were in it uh, Alan Jenkins, Wendy Cope, Freddie Gear, Vicky wow. um, Fever. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it, that little pamphlet from 1979 and 1980, and the, the fascinating who was in yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but so that that was a bit later on, I suppose. So, so that was later on. Yeah, the musical. So yeah, I'm a failed rock and roll. Unlike Dermot, I'm a failed rock and roll star. I'm you a know, failed rock and roll star. I, I'm a failed rock and roll star. <laughs> so I still play. But where I play nowadays, uh, I play in the asylums, and I play in the prisons, and yeah. I play in in, in the schools. Yeah. Uh, my father used to always say that to me. I know she always play where people can't escape. Because <laughs> you were saying just a little earlier that yeah. like when you when you work with like. Uh, very small kids in schools. Y you bring in Dylan. Oh yes, Dylan. I don't tell them it's Dylan, but they yeah. wouldn't know who he is. It's like yeah. when I go when I go to little pe people. Uh, like last week, I was in a school called Saint Francis uh, in Balmain, and when I walked into the class, and you say I'm the poet, or if you say the word poet, it's like saying I'm the washing machine. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything to them, other than they think you're on spin cycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. But it, it just developed. I'm with Robert Graves. Uh, writing poetry isn't a career, it's a disease. It's yeah. an affliction. It's a kind of a curse uh, uh, and it's a blessing. Um, uh, uh, but uh, but the way I, the, even the way, I, the, way I, the way I go about making poetry, I, I, I become obsessed by the subject. So you notice most of my books uh, have a theme. I've, I, my, my, early, my first book had uh, bicycles and stones. And then, I, and then I published my third book and somebody <laughs> said, in the Irish Times, Tony Curtis only is uh, not a bad poet, but he only writes about Ireland. So I said, I'll show them. So I wrote a book about Tibet. <laughs> Took me three years, but I, I showed them, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that kind of thing. And then I did one about, uh, I, I love paintings. I'm fascinated by, I can just, if you just think of a Dorothy Cross. Like she blows my mind when I go and see her, her work, what she does to her yeah. stuff. Uh, Donald Teske's fantastic paintings, Sohoko Blake, Liam Blake's photographs, yeah. they all feed me and yeah. interest me. Uh, and but music yeah. de definitely does. Definitely, yeah. And, and one of the things that I'm curious about, like for both of you, is, mm -hmm. is, is memory and how you, first of all, you remember the songs, you remember the repertoire. Yeah, like, is it like, you know, they say about the London taxi drivers who, who ha they have larger hypothalamuses because mm. they have to learn you know, well, all of the addresses yeah. and stuff. Like, yeah. how do you develop, how do you remember the tunes? How do you remember the, the songs? How do, do you know th what I think the interesting question is, it's not how we remember as, as uh, musicians or poets, how do we remember? I think a, a more interesting question is, why are more people's memories getting weaker or shorter mm. these days? Yeah, and, yeah. I, I, I and the reason I'm saying that, is, like, it's not to be provocative for the sake of provocative. It's yeah. because if you consider the the... the tradition of say music performed on, on, on the fiddle for example uh, so let's say it's, it's three or four hundred years old and in Ireland there wasn't a big uh, history of uh, uh, music publishing unlike in Scotland yeah. so in, I in Ireland people who played this music weren't reliant on the text so what's left the old memory but people have been using memory for thousands of years mm. and various devices or, or bits of know-how or bits of mm. technology have, have supplanted that to varying degrees mm. but the, the, the tradition of or, or the culture of traditional music, uh, although, the, although it's changing all the time. When I got into it, it was very uh, much memory reliant. 
but what were your props? Your props were things like uh, cassette tapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a great black market and, and, and cassette tapes. But memory is such an important thing because um, when you're learning from people in particular, you're not, it's not just the notes. You know, the notes, mm-hmm. you can nearly say the notes are there relevant, but the, the, the notes are the bit that get you into the music. Mm-hmm. So w- when I was spending a lot of my early years, uh, like not, not going to nightclubs and discos and all of that, so I was a bit of a square. So I was hanging out with people who were a lot older than me. So if I'm in my 20s, I spent a lot of my weekends traveling to meet people in their 60s and 70s and 80s. And I found that fascinating. I'm so glad I did that. But I, I, w- I would spend hours sitting in a room with somebody. And uh, it could be Colin Cassidy. It could be Francie Byrne, Francie Jarrick. It could be James Byrne. There might be only a handful of tunes played. But all the time, you're, you're getting stuff, mm. you know. Mm. And um, so if somebody played me a tune, I, I'm interested in, in not just the notes of the tune. I want to see the, what they do with the bow. Yeah. How do they hold the fiddle? How does it all fit together? Yeah. What mm. did they tell me about that yeah. tune? Like where, where does it come from? And the, the memory attached with the music is more than just the notes. Like it's so um, embedded in people and place. Yeah. And, and like lots of people who are long gone, yeah. but there's still a wee bit of them left through, through the music. And that mm. just passes. It kind of... It goes through you in a way. And do you have lots of little notebooks where you've taken physical notes of what you've seen or have you just absorbed this whole, like I'm really curious about how tradition gets passed on in that way. Uh, in, in my case, I rely a lot on the, the memory. Occasionally I would jot down we we fragments of, of tunes, but that, that's quite rare even. Yeah. I noticed if over the last couple of years, I would occasionally, if I, I was, I occasionally record someone on my phone, but I realised I never listened back to it. Yeah. Mm. which is really and then I said to myself that's a really stupid thing to do when do you just pay more attention Yeah. because if I didn't have my iPhone or whatever the hell it is yeah. what would I be doing I would be listening more attentively yeah. and have a very good ear and a good yeah. memory most of the time yeah. uh, but, but I, I, I know as well from teaching a thing I, I discovered in the last couple of years from teaching at more advanced level as well um, I would well I used to always say at the start of a class if you if you have a device and you want to record something fire away record anything you want yeah. Yeah. record it all if you like so yeah. whether it was video or sound and I noticed a few times when it would come to before we take a break I would go back over the stuff we'd done in the previous hour or two and I was kind of surprised at the, the attrition rate you know very few people faces can somebody start the first tune we did this morning because they were depending on mm. the device to do them remembering for them yeah so I realised that, you know, everybody's wasting their time here. You know, yeah. I'm wasting my time, you're wasting, wasting yeah. your time. You've come all this way to yeah. do this and you're not really here. Yeah. So as a wee experiment for a couple of teaching sessions, I says, let's turn it all off yeah. and let's see how we do it at the end. And yeah. uh, this is totally non-scientific, but the, the performance in terms of learning yeah. and remembering and playing it back was vastly improved, I have to say. Yeah. And, and I do think there's a lesson there for, for us all. And it, it's relevant to traditional music or anything that relies on uh, um, whatever the 21st century version of oral transmission is going to be um, I think if we if we let the if we let the the machines or the or the memory cards take over we've lost something yeah yeah no mm. I agree I absolutely mm. agree with you and and I'm wondering whether like from Tony's point of view is there a an an, an, an analog in in like the tradition of both music first, but then poetry, because I know... Yeah, well, I think what happened, when we were sitting in, 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 in playing football or playing the guitar yeah. on those evenings, that everybody just came along and sang a song. Nobody brought along a, a music sheet or there was no... It was just you remembered the words, yeah. because you remember what you like. Yeah. You sat at home with the record player, yeah. and you kept putting the needle back and listening to it again and listening to it again. And over the years, I think I just... My mind just has 
be kind of more trained. Yeah. Right, I, go, I was in a school last week and I played the opening of 10 songs to the school children. Just sang, say, the first few lines of a song. I could sing this one, I could sing this one, I could sing this one. And then, uh, and I said, I could sit here all morning singing songs to you. And nobody would say, Tony has a great memory. But if I stood up and recited a sonnet, <laughs> people are, uh, you know, the idea of remembering a poem is seen as a great feat of memory. Yeah. Whereas if somebody uh, sings, if Christi, when Christian Moore is singing, and uh, has his eyes closed and he's singing the songs. Nobody ever says, what a great memory he has. Mm -hmm. Beyonce for the kids. She's singing. And nobody ever says, when she did the two, two hours at Glastonbury, nobody said at the end of the concert, that girl has some memory, right? Mm -hmm. But if she stood, said a poem, uh, a whole poem, they, yeah. they, 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 right. memory is different with yeah. a poem. And I think I've just transferred mm -hmm. it. Uh, sometimes when I, when I often say that the poets uh, of, of my generation were... were, were, were very oral and we're, we're on stage and you have to imagine that behind us are the drums yeah. and the bass and, yeah. thing, and uh, they've all left the stage and it's just it's just you saying them mm -hmm. yeah. well, I, th I think there's, there's a really interesting part what Tony's saying as well about how, well in my case how, how the memory works you know um, at, and, and Derry and I went to St Columns in Derry and studied Spanish for O level and, and uh, A level and I think it was for the A level one of the texts was uh, Roman Cerro Gitano by Lorca uh, and you had you studied that as much for language as anything, but the teacher we had was a guy called Bob McKim, and um, he just he used used to do these great things. He used to play tapes of uh, flamenco music, and people singing, uh, sometimes actually singing or encanting mm. the poetry. So you had, the, you had the text which was pretty dead on a book, you know, when you're studying yeah. verbs and subjunctive moods and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you're hearing us sing, and then. It gave me that gigantic impression on, on yeah. me to the extent I developed somewhat of an obsession with Andalusia and Cante Hondo and all that stuff. And, I, and I, I can track it right back to a moment in the class where we're studying a poem and the next thing became alive. Yeah. You know, and, mm -hmm. it, and to some extent, um, that, that thing, like the point Tony's making about the, the, something about sound and music and, and rhythm that goes with words. And it makes it a, maybe it makes it a song or maybe it makes it something else yeah. as well. For me, I have, to, I have to be attracted to the poet. Uh, there's certain types of poetry. I don't like all poetry, right? Mm. I have to put that down immediately. Some people say, you're the po poet, you must you know, like poetry. I say, well, I like some, But you know, taste, I mean, taste. Taste, yes, taste. taste. Yeah. And I'm attracted to a certain type of poet, yeah. right? And a lot of them are very oral. Um, and, th and that's what would be the kind of poet I, 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 I like. Like Michael Hartnett. Yeah. Like, like a, that's that'd be my kind of poet. We were listening um, to a recording of him last week, yeah. actually, that I think uh, Peter Sir and, and Pat Boren did um, and he was doing the the Inchicore haiku, haiku, yeah, and it was beautiful. just to hear yeah. his voice. Yes, and, to, to and the story that I mean, I, I I could tell you the story about the day he recorded that. Go on, because he, he rang me up. Right? Michael Harton rings me up and he says, "Have you got Inchicore haiku, the book?" Mm. I says, "Of course I have." He says, "Well, I haven't, right? Could you drop around tomorrow morning? They want me to come to RTE and record it for the." Whatever that was called. The post chair or something, was no, it? No, it wasn't. No, it was, it was Dublin's 15. Dublin's 15, yeah. Dublin we, were 15. All, we were all on this. Yeah. And uh, so, so I, I, I brought it around to him the next morning and then they were coming. And I said, now be good and, you know, um, make sure you're ready when they come and get you. And of course, when they came to collect them next morning, he, 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 they couldn't, he was in no fit condition. Uh, at, so they kept going earlier and earlier and he kept, but anyway, eventually he did it and uh, he forgot his glasses. So there should be some great photographs of him out in RTE because they, they blew up the, 
the, the haiku, yeah. they blew them up, yeah. like, uh, like something of Alice in Wonderland, into big, and he read them, yeah. right? And uh, he was slightly tipsy when he did it, and, and the, the sound guy, like Peter, he, he fixed the sound up beautifully, so he, he reads them. But anyway, when he was finished, Inchikoraiku uh, 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 was quite a large book, and he got the book, and he folded it in half, and stuffed it in his inside pocket, and off he went to the world. And then in 1999, uh, he was living out in, in Dundrum, opposite crazy prices. And uh, I'd gone to see him because I was going to Australia. And uh, just when I was leaving, he says, I have something for you. And I says, something for me? He says, yeah, we stand there. And he ran upstairs and he brought down Inshikor Haiku. And it was cracked down the middle, right, of the page. And we folded it and uh, he handed it to me. He <laughs> says, me book. He says, it's your book. Uh, enjoy Australia. And that's the last time I ever saw him. Oh, wow. And next time I saw him, I was carrying his coffin. You know. And you have that book very, very I have that precious. Book. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I'd imagine. Yeah. Because you are somebody who, who sort of, n n not extemporises, that's the wrong word, but you can sort of recite from memory. I can, uh, but if you, ask me to, if you ask me to do a poem, from, like I do, I could do loads, but uh, yeah. if we're going to talk about this book, I could do s certain poems. But, um, if, you're, but if, if you're going to talk about the title poem, I can't, I can't recite that from memory. It's, okay. not, it's not one I do, but I can read it because it's, yeah. it's, it's short. But I suppose the question is around, like, you know, do poems only fully come alive when you hear them rather than read them? Um, I don't really know. So, so, some, um, did it come alive? No, I think they're just, uh, I don't know what they were. I think there's times when you, when you like a poem to hear it read and there's times when you like to re read a poem. Yeah. Yeah. I think the new thing, that Spotify thing, yeah. is fantastic. But, uh, somebody said to me one time, you, you have the weirdest Spotify list. Because on my Spotify uh, that I play in the car, I have Marianne Moore, uh, Elizabeth Bishop, yeah. Ted Hughes, Robert Frost. Yeah. Uh, you can, all oh, the poets are yeah. reading their own poems. Yeah. Everybody except Walt Whitman. Somebody else does him. But it's great. You can just drive along the car, listen to all these uh, people reading their poems. Um, so, so it is hear, hear, hearing. Hearing is. Hearing I've always voice. liked the, the yeah. voice. I always like to hear the voice. Well, yeah. could we hear you reading? Yeah, I read. I do this one because uh, um, the title poem of this book is um, the one I could recite. If you were going to talk about the first poem in the book, I can recite that because I do it in schools. Okay. Well, do you, do you want to start with that recitation and then? I could do it, and uh, I could do it if, if, if what happens when I do the poem. I do it. Why I can say it is that yeah. when I do it in schools, it's about um, a mole. A, a little earth creature and my, my friend Philip McCracken the great American sculptor he made a statue of a mole greeting the sun and as all the kids know if you if you study wind in the willow moles are supposed to be blind mm. so in wind in the willow mole has the big double glazed uh, uh, glasses mm. bottle tops isn't it bottle ending you know, and uh, it isn't that they're blind it's just that living under the ground they're you know, pushing away the mud and the stones and the bones and the coffins and the coke things. What they like to do is come up at night time and just stand in a field and look at things far away. And the further away they are, the better. Do you understand? Yeah. That's what they like to do. So I wrote this poem uh, by my friend Philip McCracken, the sculptor. And he got my poem in the Cisco Gallery and he put it on the wall of the gallery from the floor to the ceiling. And in the middle, he stuck the mole reaching the sun. See, and what I usually do is, see this, the, the, this one here, Southern Cross, Flying Fox, when he says there, I usually get somebody in the class to be the mole. Do you understand, yeah. Dermot? And, and he reads the, the, the constellations out okay. as if he is the mole. So for the purpose of this poem, 
maybe you beat them all. Okay. You see? And this is called, uh, so this is the first poem in, in the book, and it's called uh, The Mole and the Cosmos. I have taken down a piece of the night sky just for the night. At Mole's suggestion, I have put it by the window where it looks glorious against the mountains. Some say moles are blind, but it's just that they like to look at things far away, like stars. Sometimes when I step out to look at the night sky, I have to ask Mole, what's what and where's where? And Mole, as if he were a poor country fellow naming wildflowers, lists off the constellations. Southern Cross, Flying Fox, Bernice's Hare, Winged Horse, Great Dog, Water Bearer, Painter's Easel, Chained Maiden. Mole's deep voice, sunk like the roots of a tree, sturdy, reassuring, you just know he's right. Fantastic. Give yourself a slug of the water. Slug water yeah. I'll ask you about, before you read um, approximately in the key of C, yes. um, <coughs> and there's a great line in there about care and precision in, in, mm. in the making oh, of the yes. Ilan pipes that you're describing. Um, is that part of the attraction for you that... that you need equal care and precision in the sort of the writing in the poem and the making of the music. Oh yes, and every, everything, everything. The craft, the yeah. craft is everything. Yeah. When you make it, when you make it look so simple, I was just talking to Peter this morning about Archie once asked me to talk about the poem that kind of got me writing. What, what poem? What early poem got you really interested in poetry? And I said the one that really set me alive was was Crap's Last Tape. And they said, well, it's not really a poem. Well, I said it's eleven pages long, and if looked at in certain light. It is a magnificent poem, mm -hmm. and uh, so every every different things can be different things to different people. But uh, yeah, uh, we have Sam Beckett looking at yes, you over I see there. Yes, that's a great. <laughs> yeah. um, Very good. Okay, yeah. well. So just what I tell you about this poem. Yes, please. A blessing on things made well. Uh, Theo Dorgan and uh, Pat Bourne put together an anthology called "What We Found There," and it was you had to go to one of the museums in Ireland, look at things, right, and pick something and write about it. So I went into the museum in Dublin and I walked around and it was full of old stuff. So nothing really set me alight. And then I was going up to Lewisburg, I think it was, in the car. And I, and I saw this sign for the Museum of Country Life. And I went in there. And it was fantastic, full of stuff you could write about. And uh, I, first of all, I, I looked through this door. It had a vintage uh, classroom. And uh, I turned to my wife, Mary, and I said, Vintage classroom? That's my classroom. And she said... Well, Tony, you went to school 50 years ago, right? That is a vintage <laughs> class. And the difference is those, uh, I wrote a poem about the little, the little seats that were like Ryanair flight. You had to, you, you remember you, you, you squeezed into them and when the chap was hitting you, you couldn't get out. And, uh, but I, I, I stuck a pony into that poem. And that's at the time I was writing a book about ponies. Which is behind you there? Pony, yeah, so, yeah. I, so um, I said, I better not give that to them. And then I went down into the very, the basement of the, uh, and there in this glass case was a set of villain pipes. And over it, some officious civil servant had written, Michael Egan made these pipes in 1850, approximately in the key of C. And I was looking around to kick him, I wanted to kick him in the ankle. I thought, what? Imagine you've been making a set of villain pipes, and then somebody saying, uh, yeah, not bad, right? Yeah. So I wrote a poem about uh, that. And, uh, I read it now for all the musicians out there. A blessing on things made well. Michael Egan made of set of pipes in 1850, 
Now they lie silent in the glass display case at the Museum of Country Life under a sign that says, approximately in the key of C. I love the beauty of those words. You can't but admire the care and precision Michael put into making these pipes as tuned to this life as possible. For isn't everything, if looked at closely, a little off key? Lovers and dancers only a step out, a step away. Talkers on the tips of their tongues, towns at no distance. Doors and drinkers slightly ajar. I'd like a copy of that sign to hang on my wall, especially in winter when the poems are buckled, bent, every one of them, approximately in the key of C. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. We actually brought, my mother had this, an enormous um, kind of wrought iron potato crusher that had been her grandmother's. So uh, she had this in her possession and she decided it had to go to the Museum of Country Life. Yeah. So we brought it oh. down there. So yeah. so somewhere, I don't know if anybody's written a sign about it yet, but there is this enormous, I think it was made in Liverpool in 1913 or 14 or something yeah. or other. And it's just, wow. it's a beautiful, enormous kind of potato crusher. Well, the, the pipes are now gone from the Museum of Country Life. Are they, where are they yeah, gone? Yeah, they're gone to, to the pipe, pipe Museum in Belfast. Ah, okay. And I was talking to the man who runs that and he told me I, uh, they're in storage now yeah but he says if you come up anytime just knock on the door show them your poem and we'll we'll get the pipes out and you can see them and they might be certain about whether they are in the key or, oh, and or not, or not at, yeah. at, at yeah. that point but some musicians say to me that all, all the pipes you, you slide to the note that it isn't it's a silly kind of thing to put up yeah. um, have you tried playing the Ellen pipes I, I played the pipes for seven or eight years, you know. Yeah. I did. Um, my brother Joe still plays the pipes. I, I, I love them. The reason I stopped playing them was, um, like in those days, maintenance was a big problem. And I'm not very handy, because my, my brother Joseph is. But um, I'll tell you this now, about maybe every year or every two years, I meet a friend of mine and I borrow his pipes and I have a squawk. And I had a, yeah. I had a squawk last October in Glanty's at a fiddle weekend. Um, a friend of mine, Sheila Field, was over from Glasgow, and I, I tried to tune in her pipes. But I, I, I tell you about pipes. Like I, I'm nearly always finger thinking tunes in my head and thinking fingering on the fiddle or fingering yeah. on on the pipes or whistle. Mm -hmm. um, and strangely enough, I would find that I, pl I play more music non-physically than physically, because you're always. Well, I'm always thinking. Yeah. Um, like what would it be like if you did this? What? How would that feel on the pipes? Yeah. So I don't. I, I never like. I never feel any strains if I pick up a fiddle and I haven't played for a while because yeah. the kind of the fingers are half expecting it, mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same with the pipes. Could you maybe give us a couple of tunes now? I will indeed. Um, just th thinking back to when we were talking there about about memory. Um, one of, one of the most astonishing displays of memory I saw was on Christmas Eve, nineteen eighty two, in a kitchen in a house up in Kilcarran, Donegal. And it was a man, Francie Byrne. Francie would have been well up in his 70s then, but um, to cut a long story short, uh, a few of us called in on a visit, kind of late at night, maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve, and Francie was getting ready for midnight mass. He was shaving uh, when he heard there was a fiddle player in the house down tools. And he came, down, he came into the kitchen, and um, before long, he started playing tunes on the fiddle. Now, at that stage, I would say I was fairly well up on, on the repertoire. So I thought, <laughs> but Fran Francie played standing up for uh, somewhere between five and seven hours. God, you're the key, Richard. <laughs> and I'll tell you this: 
I, I, I've often said this to people, if I knew like one tune out of ten, I was doing okay. Yeah. It was a, an astonishing mm. yeah. display, and that was stuff that was just top of mind. Yeah. You know, I, I called back to visit Francie several times, and he would, uh, he might just start talking about jigs or hornpipes or highlands or something, and just yeah. play away at those. It, it, it was an amazing thing. You know, and you was he captured? Kind of, did anybody record him? Or yeah, there's some 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 recordings made of of uh, Francie and Francie and his brother Mickey Mickey Ban O'Burn. They, they, they had a, a marvelous way of playing two fiddles. Uh, in unison, and then one of them might play in octaves or do these really unusual drone sounds in the fiddle. So, yeah. it's the most exotic sound you could hear, you know. Uh, and you could hear a very strong bagpipe influence on, on some of Francis' music as well. But just the the the, the output <laughs> of what that man had in his head, and then he played tunes that nobody re- nobody else knew. Mm-hmm. So that, of course, has us all thinking: Did he compose them? And there's this great mm-hmm. unspoken thing with a lot of traditional musicians, especially of an older generation, like it's. A bit, like it's a bit modesty and diffidence. They would never really tell you yeah. if they composed mm. something. And you don't ask. That's you know, really and, and, yeah. and, 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 and people might say, ah, oh, that that was always played around here, but then nobody yeah. else knew it. Or, you know, the folkloric side yeah. of it would be, we got that from the, the fairies or yeah. the magic fiddler yeah. we met or yeah. the magic paper. Yeah. You know, so there's a whole great, there's a great world attached to this music. There's a great element of, like there's a permanent degree of fantasy goes with it, you know, because... Mm. Um, you just can't nail it down. Like when Tony read his poem there, approximately, and and the KSC, like that is that nails so many of the like the you might say the culture clashes or the knowledge clashes when you have a rational system, so called, mm-hmm. and then someone that's so uh, that looks so disordered as traditional music. It's got a, it's got a, just a different set of rules. Mm-hmm. So approximately in the KSC, who cares? Yeah. Robbie Burns, when he talked about himself, and people said, "Did you write that?" He says, "I'm a mender of old tunes, <laughs> maker of new." And, and that's what Dan was yeah. talking about. Yeah. Mender of old tunes, maker of new. You know? yeah. So he was, uh, old Lang Syne, did you write it? I think he added, added one or two words to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but it was still, if you see who, who his name is put underneath it, but he, but he wouldn't have ever claimed to have written so it. So you're in the tradition, but you're adding to it. You're adding to it. He always, yeah. you know... Uh, Just, well, yeah. I, th- I think, I see that thing about adding to it. I think that's why some players are remembered more than others. Actually, it's because they, they've, they've enriched or enhanced... Uh, something that's been old and sometimes yeah. tunes that maybe were a wee bit neglected or, or threadbare yeah. um, I mean I heard somebody describing the late John Doherty's fiddle playing one time that he could hearing John take an old hackneyed tune and play it mm. it was like somebody walking past a, a, a withered plant or a faded plant and it just sprung yeah. into life a beautiful image you know yeah. and yeah. I, I think I think that's one, one of the great things about like tunes don't actually die and vanish you know they stay yeah. They, they do stay around, uh, but like humans, I suppose, like we're, you know, we're always around in some form. Um, and and I think, you know, when you look at when you look at all, all of the un, unanalyzable elements of uh, like an oral tradition, like traditional music, or maybe the magic mm. of, of making poems as well. There's a whole lot of that stuff you can't you can't <laughs> you can't really say. Well, you do this, you do that, and you yeah. get that. It doesn't really work in that linear way. And yeah. and that's a thing that interests me when I'm teaching as well, because when um, Students, especially like maybe more mature students from coming from other mm. musical cultures, um, when when they realise that one of the rules of making progress on on traditional music on the fiddle is that you have to forget a lot of rules and try and adopt different kinds of norms. I wouldn't say they're the rules. They find that sometimes either a massive challenge or a great liberation. Mm. Mm. You know, and I, I've I've worked with uh, people from um, uh, orchestral backgrounds, jazz backgrounds. Uh, Orchestral teachers, uh, string quartet 
players and um, so many of them have said you know there's, there's something kind of liberating about being able to go into the music this way because it, the technique isn't radically mm. different it's just inflected in different ways so mm. it's, it's helping people pick up I would say the phonology and the accent of, of Irish music is, is, is what that's all about mm. you mm. know there's no ma- there aren't magic tricks mm. And well, will you show us a bit of magic then? Well, um, th- this is approximately... Approximately the key of... This here's a, um, a jig, a version of a, a jig called the Wedding Jig. And it's another one. Of, it's a tune that's associated with a, a man called Frank Cassidy. And um, again, it's a tune that there's not a vast amount known about. Had Frank not been recorded playing it back in the 1970s, um, I don't know, would the tune still be going? It's yeah. one of those... Maybe he composed it. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Let's call it the, the wedding jig. to follow that with you have a poem about a, a, a Schlieve Lucre session. I have a Schlieve Lucre session. Uh, it's kind of an accidental poem. It's a, a, probably a strange little poem. I was asked to introduce uh, one of the network sessions, uh, music network sessions, which are a great thing that uh, tour Ireland every year and they came to Clifton Festival. So they asked me to introduce them. I wouldn't be the best at introducing uh, the likes of Dermot. There's much more uh, better introducers. I would be better doing the poetry. So I put all my stuff together and uh, I introduced Paddy O'Connor, Ephany Cueve, Breen, Mick O'Brien and Nelanie Cronin. I introduced them and that was grand. But 
just when they came on, as, as they passed me, they said, now, Tony, there'll be a 20-minute interval and you'll have to reintroduce us for the second half. I said, and I sat, uh, as I sat and listened to them, um, I said, how am I going to reintroduce them? I've used up everything. And uh, as I sat there in the dark, we must have been the shadows of the afternoon, listening to them, I wrote this poem and I used it to introduce them in the second half. So it's called uh, Tunes Carried on the Night Air. The sleeve lure barn lifts her wooden skirt, dusts herself down, then dances to reels and jigs. Her shuffling feet wake the fox in the field, the blackbird in the trees. Their sudden scatter revives, the drunk floating along in the dark, heading home. Play on, he shouts. We have the moon on the run, and I can see my old father dancing, cracking the flags. He loved to see a barn dance, a moon waltz, a man raise his glass to the piper, the fiddler, the box player and the singer. Play on, lads, he shouts, play on. That's superb. That was just for the year. Uh, that's, that's then they came back on stage and superb. it got me out of it. Well, gentlemen, it's been fantastic to, to chat to you about both. It kind of was striking me there that, that okay, you know, we can give out about technology and, and the internet and all that stuff. But in a way, maybe we're getting closer to the oral tradition that all of this came out of again, because it's not just the words on the page anymore. We can do things like this. We can, you know, record, we can capture, we mm. can put it out there so that people can hear again, um, which, which is good. So you promised that you could maybe join forces don't know, musically to, to, to finish off. Now, so um, this is like the, uh, I seem to end up with these great musicians like Jamerson, John Sheen, and then uh, they, I, 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 I'm, I like playing, but um, I, I, I don't ever, I don't usually play with other musicians uh, or, or vice versa. <laughs> And just actually while they are uh, uh, tuning up, I will say um, you've been listening to the second episode of the Attic Sessions. Um, we will be airing again uh, in about a month's time when we will be looking at a very different topic, the uh, Irish crime fiction. And we'll be doing that in the company of Louise Phillips and Paul Perry. Um, but wonderful to get one final taste of the... Uh, the musical talents of Mr. Dermot McLaughlin and the, uh, Mr. Tony Curtis. Uh, this is an old song. Uh, I do it in the schools because uh, Ed Sheeran has taken to doing it. Uh, it, it, it. It might have been sung by Shakespeare. Of all the money e'er I had I spent it in good company And all the harm that ever I done Alas, it was to none but me And all I have done for want of wit to memory now I can't recall so fill to me 
parting glass Good night and joy be with you I like that. We did the rehearsal and the, and the performance at the women's <laughs> That was fantastic. Yeah.